We've been thinking about listening to the Bible in, in stereo. Somebody gave me a, a, well, they loaned me an iPod recently, and I was just astounded. The only pod I'd ever known up to that was a P-pod. And then they gave me this iPod, and I listened, and the music was just astounding. The richness as you listen to the sound coming from both the earphones. And when we develop this art and this skill of listening to the whole Bible, I promise you it will resonate with a richness. When we begin to listen to both these testaments speaking to us, well, we discover when we come back into the Old Covenant, a very big part of the opening chapters of the Bible, the opening books of the Bible, are about a journey. They're about effectively a pilgrimage away leading towards the promised land. That story starts in the first five books of the Bible, comes to something of a climax in the sixth book of the book of Joshua, and then life in the land goes on. But if we were to put ourselves as it way back in to the mind of the Hebrew Scriptures, I think we have a phenomenal amount to learn. Because it's not accidental, and we'll see this more next Sunday morning because these four stand together, we're going to go into the first century world of the letter to the book of, of Hebrews and discover that writing to the first century church, the writer of Hebrews takes us back into this wilderness experience. But we want to explore something of that experience tonight. Think of the view, the anticipation of an Old Testament believer. Somebody amongst the people of God, they were living and looking forward to the fulfillment of promise. Now those promises, of course, were grounded in the promises given to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12 in the opening few verses. But you get this sense, you're journeying towards the fulfillment of a promise. And so you get the image in the book of Joshua of them entering into a rest. They had come to a point that was a partial fulfillment of that journey. Now, when you begin to think about it, that's a journey <clears throat> that for us, we're going to begin with the Exodus event, with Moses being the man of God's choice, bringing his people through an experience, a veritable experience of death, bringing them through the waters. It's not incidental that in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, Paul actually likens that to a baptism. Remember in 1 Corinthians 10, Paul speaking to the Corinthians said, Our fathers were baptized into Moses. So as you listen, you begin to see the analogies. The man of God's choice, bringing his people through death, bringing them through the waters, into a journey, a journey that was going to take them towards the fulfillment of promise. But on the road to promise, we've got to pass through the wilderness. And that's where we want to stop for a little while this evening. Just to explore what the Bible has to say for the, the wilderness is a place full of the unanticipated. Come with me to two passages set in the wilderness. First of all, Exodus 32. Exodus 32. And then we're going to turn to Matthew's Gospel, Matthew chapter 4. And it's developing this art of listening in stereo to passages that initially may not seem connected. 
But Exodus 32, you've had the first 19 chapters of God's intrusion into history, bringing them to himself. From 20 to 25, God has been marrying his bride. He's been entering in to consummate a covenant relationship with them. Then from 25 onwards, he's coming down into the nuptial home, the tent of meeting, the tabernacle. He's going to dwell with his people. Presence is a very important idea. But then, at the foot of the mountain in the desert, where God has revealed himself to them, that presence is seriously threatened because of their own stubbornness and their own infidelity. Listen to the passage, chapter 32. When the people saw that Moses was so long in coming down from the mountain, they gathered round Aaron and they said, Come, let's make gods who will go before us. As for this fellow Moses who brought us up out of Egypt, we, we don't know what's happened to him. Aaron answered them, Take off the gold earrings that your wives, your sons and your daughters are wearing. Bring them to me. So that all the people took off their earrings, brought them to Aaron. And he took what they handed him and made it into an idol cast in the shape of a calf, fashioning it with a tool. Then they said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you out of the land of Egypt. Now come again into the desert, a different desert, many centuries later. But a desert again strategically placed at the very beginning of the ministry of a greater than Moses. Matthew chapter 4. Where Jesus was led by the Spirit into the desert to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights he was hungry. And the tempter came to him and said, If you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. Jesus answered, It is written, Man does not live by bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and had him stand on the highest point in the temple. If you are the Son of God, he said, Throw yourself down, because it's written, he will command his angels concerning you. They will lift up their hands, lift you up in their hands, so that you will not strike your foot against the stone. Jesus answered him, It is also written, Do not put the Lord your God to the test. Again the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. All this I will give you, he said, if you will bow down and worship me. Jesus said to him, Away from me, Satan, for it is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Then the devil left him. And angels came and attended him. Two very striking episodes, both situated in the desert. Because as we come into the desert in Scripture, we find that in many ways it's a stage that's going to be a place of revelation and a place of rebellion. It's a place where Israel, on the one hand, are going to confront dangers that virtually seem to eliminate them, annihilate them, 
but also experience a profound sense of divine help on a daily level. So the stage is being set for revelation. And as we come into this, this place, this remote, this isolated place, becomes marked by both rebellion and revelation. And as we come into the desert and explore this desert, we want to think in stereo because we want to look first of all at the experience of Israel, the nation in the desert. But then we want to look at the place of Israel, the man in the desert. Now this is maybe a slightly different way of thinking than we're used to. But what I want you to do is keep thinking about the, the big picture of what's going on in the whole Bible. We so often just use it as a reservoir of the inspirational thoughts, the isolated texts. But I, I want us to begin to explore the very fabric of the big story. This sort of meta-narrative. This big overarching story in which every other little incident, every other little person is actually set. And as you begin to explore it that way, then things begin to take on, well, a, a marvelous structure in the scripture as a whole. This idea of Israel the nation and Israel the man. Well, we've got to back up a little bit here because, again, this is a way of thinking that is so thoroughly Jewish, so deeply Hebraic, very, very richly biblical, but profoundly alien to our Western society. We're very much individuals. We're very much into my, you know, my personal sound system, my personal stereo, my personal saviour, my personal salvation. Now that's not said cynically, but we've come down to this level where everything's, you know, about me at the centre of it. And we even read the Bible with this, this question, what can I get out of it? with the result that we come to parts like Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy and, and we say, I'm not getting a lot out of that today, so we tend to relegate it. We put it in a back burner. But what if we begin to ask, rather than what can I get out of this for today, we ask a radically different question with a new orientation and say, why has God thought this important enough to actually reveal? Why has he recorded this? What's he trying to tell me, even in obscure parts of, of Leviticus and Numbers? And then we begin to discover that as we work our way through the scriptures, there's this concept that we can toggle between, between the one and the many, between the particular and the universal, between Israel as a people, but also Israel as a person. Maybe you've come across this idea, probably the clearest expression of it, as is you read the book of Isaiah, where you see the description of the servant. The servant, on the one hand, is Israel as a nation, my people. But equally clearly in the prophet Isaiah, the servant is an individual, where somehow or another, the corporate all becomes concentrated into the one man of God's choice. This idea is at the very heart of biblical thinking. And indeed ancient Near Eastern thinking. You get, I suppose, the example that we're all the most familiar with is the story of David and Goliath. Because it embodies this thinking that one can represent many. When David won, you might say, as I always thought as a boy, 
Why did the Philistines not sweep down? They had the military superiority. Read the text of the account. And you see that in those days, the Israelites were in such an impoverished state, they had very little metal. They couldn't even sharpen their own plowshares. They had to go down to the Philistines to get their plowshares sharpened. There was very little metal in Israel. But the Philistine, look at, you know, Goliath was a veritable magnet. There was so much metal on him. Why, when he was defeated, did the Philistines not sweep down and clean out the Israelites? Because as an ancient Near Eastern people, they understood David was not just an individual. When he won, his people won. When Goliath fell, his people whom he represented fell. And so when we come right through the scriptures, and of course this is the Paul's idea when you come to Romans 5, when you talk about Adam sinning and all men sinning, the one who represents the many. So when we come, if we could look at it this way, running through the scriptures, you're often moving from humanity as a whole right through to the history of one. When you begin to think about it, the whole Bible, our future, all depends on our relationship to two men. When you look at Paul's thinking, it all depends on our relationship to one man who was thoroughly rebellious and disobedient, to a second man who was obedient even to the point of death. And as you work your way through the Old Testament, you begin to see that into the midst of a rebellious humanity, God chose a particular people, Israel. One people through whom he was going to bring revelation and blessing to the nations. Even within that particular people, Israel, there was ultimately only going to be a, a remnant that were absolutely faithful to him. But where was the true Israel of God? The true Israel of God was ultimately embodied in the son of Abraham, in the son of David, in the ultimate servant, none other than Jesus himself. Jesus was Israel embodied. There's Israel the people, but there's Israel the man. There is one people, but there is also one person. And we toggle between these two as we work our way through the Bible as a whole. And this becomes particularly clear when you come into the New Testament. And indeed, we can take that a step further. Because as we begin to develop it as one people, Israel can be embodied in one person, so in that one person, Christ, there develops a new people. That's where believers, that's where Christians emerge, as a new humanity. Where is our identity? Where is our life? It is in him. We are seated in him in heavenly places. Our salvation, our life, our liberty... Everything is inextricably bound up, inseparably bound up in him. If we have life, it is in him. You see, this lovely balancing is the scripture as a whole. Because you start off with one nation who are ultimately a rebellious people. But God raises up the one true Israel. He is obedient even to death. And in him, there is a new humanity. He is the first fruits from the dead. He is the firstborn. He is the first to come of this new humanity and we exist in him. This is what Paul means when it talks, he talks about us being part of a new creation, a new humanity, a, a new person belonging in Christ. 
So let's keep this in mind. Because Israel can be embodied in the one of God's choice. The true Israel. We'll talk more about that just in a minute. But let's listen in stereo. Let's tune in to the scripture as a whole as we take up that theme. Because first of all, we come to look at Israel, the nation, in the wilderness. That's a major theme of the book of, well, the last part of the book of Exodus, a major part of the book of Numbers. That book, incidentally, we call Numbers, is called In the Desert, in the Hebrew Bible. So let's come into the wilderness, because first of all, it's a place of revelation. It was from Egypt, God brought Israel out to Mount Sinai, into the Sinai Peninsula, into the desert. There's the place where everything else is stripped away. God makes himself known. He brings them to the mountain. This is a characteristic of how God works. Remember how the new covenant begins? The voice of one crying in the wilderness. John the Baptist, a veritable scarecrow of a character, sort of a vegetarian scarecrow in, in, you know, in leather coat. There he is in the desert, a real oddball, but he's the voice of God in the desert. It's a place of revelation. It's in this place of revelation God makes himself known, particularly in the tent of meeting. Remember that mobile sanctuary? that one and the same time embodied the very presence of God, saying, I am imminent among you, I am there, I am accessible, but without ever jeopardizing or compromising his holy otherness, his transcendence. I'm with you, I'm among you, but don't play with me. I am still the holy God. He had come among his people right into the desert. He was there, his presence in the very hearts of his people. And that presence, of course, was symbolized very powerfully in the Ark of the Covenant. Now, other ancient Near Eastern peoples had arks. But in their arks, they would have kept their own deities, their own gods, their amulets, their idols. In Israel's box, you had the Word of God. You had the written Word of God. At the very heart of God's revelation to His people was His Word. Now, Look at the, the significance of this in the desert. Now, we're not looking at, he at Hebrew just to be smart, Alex. Please don't misunderstand me this way. But there's something we can only see that the rabbis point out, and it's, it's astounding when we see it. This here is actually the Hebrew word midbar that means the desert, the wilderness. Actually, in the Hebrew Bible, the book of Numbers is not called Numbers. Numbers is a name that... About two centuries before Jesus, a, a Ptolemy in Egypt commissioned a Greek translation of the Bible. He brought in Greek scholars uh, and they said this book's about counting, it's about numbers. So they called it Numbers. But in the Hebrew Bible, the Hebrew books take their names from often the very first important word in the text. And the first words of Deuteronomy, the first important words of this book are Bamidbar, which literally means in the desert, in the wilderness. But now here's the thing, and we never ever in a month of Sundays would see this in English. But this is the fascinating thing some of the rabbis pointed out. You see, there are four letters in that word that means desert, wilderness, isolated place. But three of those letters 
also make up the Hebrew word for word. And the rabbis, when they looked at this word, they said, the wilderness, it is the place where Israel was intended to hear and to be exposed to the word of God. Begin to think about it. All the extraneous, all the strapping, trappings were taken away. This was a place where having brought them out of Egypt, God brought them to himself. He says, I want you to hear me and to meet me. The background here is from a very interesting website. It's, it's a Jewish scholar who's taking computerized text, this is the wilderness, and imposing the text of the book of Numbers on it. Do you see what he's done here with the text? It's the text of the book of Numbers and what he's done against the background of the undulating desert, he has superimposed the text that described, remember at the beginning of Numbers how the twelve tribes encamped around the tent of meeting, the glory cloud of the Lord? In a lovely way, in a very graphic way, this Hebrew graphic artist is bringing home the desert was a place where they were meant to be exposed to the word. The place where they would discover man would not live by bread alone. This was a place, remember Eugene Peterson, one of his latest books, eat this word. This is the source of life. You take it in. You meet with God. It's here, in the midst of the desert, the glory comes and God speaks his word. The desert is a place of revelation. But by the same token, the desert is a place of rebellion. Now, as you move through the scriptures, especially in the Psalms and in the Proverbs, the prophets, you will see different views of, of, of the wilderness. Some of a very positive view, like the prophet Hosea. Isaiah talks about them taking, or God taking Israel back into the desert to renew his love. It's it's as if he's the ultimate romantic saying, come back with me and let's renew our passion in the desert. There'll be nothing to distract us here. Equally, the psalmist, and later on the New Testament writer of the book of Hebrews, can see it as a place of rebellion. Because there, when everything else is stripped away, you see the reality of the human heart. Now, we can't look at it in, in, in exhaustive ways, but let me suggest to you just several things from Israel's experience in the desert that in many ways are timeless, rooted in history, but also profoundly timeless. We discover Israel struggles in the desert with the fact that God was a God whom they could not see. That's something initially they were not happy with. That's something they wanted to change. And that's something that we read about, actually, in Exodus chapter 32. Because there at the foot of Mount Sinai, Moses had been up the mountain for a number of days, and at the foot of the mountain, Israel got tired waiting. Remember, this was the God who had revealed himself to them at the burning bush. But Israel got tired waiting for this God. And what do we read in Exodus chapter 32? Now, look, the text is very, very striking. And it's very clear in chapter 32. Particularly if you look at, at verse 4. When they'd come to Aaron and they'd fashioned a calf, made it with a tool, they said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. 
No, they didn't want to deny the fact of the saving God who brought them out of Egypt. But what was happening? They weren't disowning the God who had brought them out of Egypt, but what did they try to do? This God who at the bush had revealed a name to them, this was a God whom they wanted now to visualize. They weren't happy any longer with the fact that God had just given them a name. God had forbidden all forms of visualization and all idols. Now what did they want? They wanted to visualize this God in some way or another. They wanted to shape him. They wanted to mold him. And what did they do? They turned to the golden calf, a calf that they would have been introduced to against the Apis cult down in Egypt because the golden bull was an incredibly important and potent symbol in Egypt. It was a symbol both of wealth in terms of gold. It was a symbol of sexual potency in terms of its fertility and virility. It was a symbol also of of just sheer naked aggression and, and might and power. So sex and power and money, it stood for all of these three. It embodied that. So what did Israel want? It's no longer enough to just have a name. We want to visualize our God. We want to, somewhere or another, manipulate and control our God. And maybe some of your minds are way ahead of me. Because isn't this very similar to the sin of Jeroboam when he was establishing the northern kingdom? He built two idols and he virtually reiterated verbatim What they'd said to Aaron, come and worship your gods, Israel, the gods who brought you out of Egypt. Now, if you look at the sin of Jeroboam, what was the real nature of that sin? Some would say it was that he made an image of God. Fair enough. And in that sense, he did break one of the ten words. But Jagilul, a French thinker, pushes us even further in that. Because what does Jeroboam do? He not only makes an image of God, But he takes the two golden calves that he makes and he places them on the border at Dan and at Bethel. He places them on the borders of his northern kingdom to protect the northern kingdom that he had established. Jeroboam was one of the first to say, for God and the north. For God and the little political entity that we have established, he takes the sovereign creator of the universe and he reduces him into a petty little nationalistic deity who is meant to exist solely for the protection of a humanly created little state. He takes his God and he reduces him. And that's one of the sins of Israel. And along with that sin of creating the image, well, we read in chapter 36, a German expressionist artist of the the turn of the century expressed it very graphically in this painting about the the golden calf. Because if you look at the text of Exodus 34, verse 6, it says, they sat down to eat and drink, they got up to indulge in revelry. They turned their image, they turned their religion into an excuse for sexual indulgence, for every form of debauchery that was imaginable. They took their God and they reduced him by trying to define him and control him and see him as one who would exist for their own indulgence. That was one of the big problems in the desert. 
Secondly, it begins to emerge very clearly and very quickly in the desert. You're not very far into the desert till you discover they also struggle with the leader they did not choose. Very, very quickly into the desert, you discover that Israel begins to rebel against Moses. Look at the book of Numbers, chapter 16. We can only touch a few sample verses now. But at chapter 16, there's the very famous or infamous rebellion of Korah, the son of Ishar, the son of Kohath, the son of Levi. And we read at verse 2, they rose up against Moses. And there's a rebellion. Look at verse 3. They came as a group to oppose Moses and Aaron. They said to him, you've gone too far. The whole community is holy, every one of them. The Lord is with them. Why then do you set yourselves above the Lord's assembly? What you're going to discover very quickly into the desert was something we looked at this morning. Even Israel was deeply offended with the idea of the one of God's choice. Moses, why you? Do you think you're better than the rest of us? We have as much right to leadership as you do. And Israel was profoundly engaged in this struggle. At home, read on the rest of chapter 16. Then read on into chapter 17 because you see the same incident in a similar and a parallel way with Aaron's staff that budded. It was as if God had to say, Moses and Aaron, Israel, these are the men of my choice. The way out of the desert, the way to the promise, is through the men of my choice. Because you'll read this and you'll find it very, very striking in several different places where Moses says, look, come before the Lord and you will see whom the Lord has chosen. You want the men of your choice. You want the means of your choice. You have to learn, Israel, that you're part of my way. It's the man of my choice. We just touched on that a little bit this morning, but it's one of those most offensive ideas to our modern society. That there is one name that is above every name. There is one name in which there is salvation. There is one name that is above every other name. Listen in stereo. There was only one way out of Egypt through the man of God's choice who would bring them through the experience of death into the experience of life. Come to the new covenant. There's no repudiation of that because there is one way through the man of God's choice who brought his people through death into resurrection victory. Israel wanted to define their God and limit him. Israel wanted to reject the one of God's choice. And look at Israel, how they struggled with a future they couldn't control. Oh, boy, did Moses have one awful job at times. You talk about a bunch of moaners. They moaned, they groaned. Read through numbers. The, the biggest bunch of whinges. They became so influenced by their stomach that they looked back and they idealized Egypt. All they could remember, they couldn't remember the slavery, but they could remember the garlic and the onions and the fish. They were so blinded. And they thought, you see, they thought about the most basic issues, bread and water. Read through the story, I encourage you, we don't have time now, but read through it. 
Because the fundamental question is, God, can you really provide for us? Can you really provide for us? And it's in that context. Do you remember there's that very real incident in the course of it where, look at their complaints. Because how does the story of Israel start off? It starts off where in the banks of the Red Sea they're scared because there's too much water. God will never get us through this. They're not very far into the desert to their complaining. Now there's too little water. God, are we going to go thirsty? And it's in this context you have got that very, very striking incident. Remember in Numbers chapter 21 where they begin to complain and they come to moan at the city of Arad. And look particularly at Numbers 21 at verse 4. They travelled from Mount Hor along the route to the Red Sea to go round Edom. But the people grew impatient in the way. They spoke against Moses. They spoke against God and against Moses. And they said, Why have you brought us up out of Egypt? To die in the desert? There's no water. There's no bread. And we detest this miserable food. And it's in that context we have the very famous incident, remember, where God sent the venomous snakes. And remember the only response where as God was about to punish them all, look at verse 8, Moses, the Lord said to Moses, make a snake and put it up on a pole. Anyone who is bitten can look at it and live. You know, to this day, that there's a company that make elevators or lifts in Israel. It's called Nechustan. And Nechustan is the name given to the snake lifted up in the wilderness. And if you ever get into a lift in Israel, you may see that logo because it's the idea of something being lifted up that all men may see and in that object find the only way to life. Your minds are away ahead, aren't they? Because you're listening in stereo. Because as Moses lifted up that servant in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. The parallels that are so striking here. A people in the desert with so much to teach us. But look at Israel the man in the desert. Because Israel and the people in the desert were marked by intransigence, infidelity, by stubbornness, by fickleness. They failed. But God would one day take the true Israel back into the desert. He would take Israel, the man, the one who embodied what Israel was truly about. Listen to one commentator the Gospel of Matthew identifies Jesus as the faithful child whom God had desired in Israel. And what does God do with the faithful child now in Jesus, the obedient child who perfectly fulfills the righteousness demanded by God in the Torah? We find that like Israel, Jesus is tested in the wilderness. It's no accident, Matthews begins. You're so early out into the desert. 
Do you ever notice Jesus' teaching done on the mountain? It's the Sermon on the Mount. Here is a greater than Moses. Remember the book of Hebrews? In this house that God is building, Moses had been a servant. Jesus, the ultimate son. Do you hear the, the continuity in this big picture? This is the nature of what God's actually doing for us. This is the nature of Scripture. It's about God not just giving us inspirational thoughts for the day, but saying, I'm giving you an insight into my divine modus operandi. This is how I work. I want you to marvel at ways that are so beyond you. Because I'm taking my obedient son into the desert. And that little passage we read, in the course of that wilderness temptation, we read that the devil took Jesus up into the highest place in Jerusalem. Where did he take him? Well, if you come up here, come up the Terrapian Valley, we're coming up to the Temple Mount. Here's the southern wall. And as we come up, one of the striking features about the Temple Mount is, of course, this top southwestern corner. Pilgrims would have been coming up here. There was excitement. There was an anticipation. Probably where Jesus was taken, the highest point in the temple, was this southwestern corner. Now, why do we say this? Well, you know, today, obviously, this part, this top part of the Temple Mount has gone. If you've been to Israel, all you see today is really the, the foundations of the mount. You don't see the, the full structure. But here, you still, in a new archaeological park, you can stand in here at the southwestern temple corner. And what you'll see is a reproduction of this stone that fell from this southwestern corner. There's a Hebrew inscription on it. You see this little alcove here? Probably a priest would stand here once a week to announce Shabbat. A priest would sound the shofar from there when he was announcing the major festivals. And tradition has it that the priest would sound the, the trumpet from there when Messiah would come. Because the Hebrew inscription said, this is the place of trumpeting. Some will suggest this is the place where Jesus was actually taken by the devil to be tempted and to be tried. So that if Jesus had have jumped he would have jumped down here into the southwestern corner and he would have been effectively jumping down into a, a shopping area because there was a row of shops going right up this western wall. There were shops in here. Today you can go and you can stand where Jesus didn't jump. Now think of the significance of it. If in the middle of his temptation, Jesus would have jumped. He would have effectively said to Satan, I will adopt your strategy for bringing my kingdom into the world. But Jesus refused to jump. Because his kingdom was going to come in a way that was radically antithetical to the way the devil wanted. In the middle of the temptation, in the intensity of the wilderness experience, Jesus countered every one of Satan's attacks by quoting Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy is not just a cat in a West End musical. Deuteronomy was the very substance of the word revealed in the wilderness. And by it, God in Jesus rebuffed the satanic strategy. 
the temptation. And in one way, to me, it's one of the most significant places in Jerusalem. Go and stand where Jesus didn't jump. And realize the depth and the intensity of the nature of the kingdom you are a part of. Because the kingdom of Christ and his God cannot come into this world by the ways of the world. The only way that kingdom will come will be by a radical rejection of secular methodology, of human ways of thinking, of human pride. It will only come in God's ways. Because as you come and stand where Jesus didn't jump, you're taken back into that depths of that wilderness experience where the true Israel refused to yield. And he was obedient, even to the point of death. Israel the man in the desert. Israel the obedient man. Obedient to the very point of death. Through his obedience comes our salvation. And as you look at this Israel the man, what do you discover against the book of Numbers? In the Gospels, Jesus is presented as the living water to a people who are thirsty in a dry place. Jesus is presented as the way and the guide to a people who are coming through a rough place. Jesus is presented as the light in the midst of the darkness. Every one of these images answering to the position of Israel in the desert. Jesus as the ultimate one lifted up in the serpent. As the serpent to give life. And as we'll think tonight, for people on the journey, Jesus is the ultimate manna. The one who says, I will provide the water in the bread on the journey. You're coming through a dry place. You're in difficult circumstances. Here's the one who invites us to come and taste of his provision. Here's the one who is ultimately the very way himself. And with him and in him we journey on towards the fulfillment of the promise. Here's but a respite station. It's a refreshment spot on the journey towards the fulfillment of the promise. Father, as we come and sit at this table tonight, maybe we're war weary, maybe we're worn down, we'd maybe desperately need refreshment. Will you meet with us? And may we find the very bread of life and to discover at this table we won't live with earthly things alone but with the bread that comes down from above. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.